Hello and welcome to Soothing Pods Sleep Stories. My name is Chris, and tonight I will be your guide as we embark on a journey to the fogging, sprawling moors of Dartmoor, as we unravel the mystery of the Hound of the Baskervilles, with none other than Sherlock Holmes himself. We will follow his steps and reasoning as he unravels the secret behind a mythical beast that has been tormenting a family for several years. As he comes to find the answers, we will be alongside him, making our way through the invigorating spring air and soaking in the beauty of the countryside and the imposing estate of the Baskervilles. Before we embark on that journey together with Sherlock Holmes, however, let us take a moment to unwind and find comfort in the place that we're in, here and now. That way, we can make our way through this story together in a relaxed, positive way. Close your eyes and allow your body to sink into the mattress beneath you. Here and now, there are no obligations. There is no to-do list. By simply closing your eyes and listening to the sound of my voice, you are already giving your body the rest that it deserves. And in time, sleep will come along with it. With your body relaxing and sinking deeper and deeper into the mattress with each moment. I want you to imagine something with me. You are curled up in your soft, plush bed. The blankets are wrapped around you. But now, your bed isn't in your room. It is someplace much more magical and much more cozy. You are in the bedroom of a large, beautiful house on an estate in Britain. The walls around you are coated with a brilliant dark green wallpaper. A wallpaper adorned with a mosaic of pink, purple, and yellow flowers, all of which are tangled and appear as if they are almost dancing with one another. The wallpaper is intricate and busy in a sophisticated way that makes you feel like you have crawled into a Bronte sister novel, or perhaps an Arthur Conan Doyle novel. The wallpaper only takes up the upper half of the wall 
the lower half is wood, dark mahogany wood that wraps around the room as if it is embracing it. It gives the entire space an even warmer, cozier feel. The mahogany winds up the walls at certain points, splitting into beautiful built-in shelves that are peppered with antique books that have worn, colorful spines. You imagine that they are full of poetry. Poetry that would lull you to sleep after hearing only a few of the honey-sweet words. But the most miraculous part of this cozy room is located on the far wall at the foot of the bed. There, a stunning fireplace rests. A fireplace crafted of stone and wood that appears to be as old as the house itself. Inside the fireplace, a calm, comforting fire crackles. As sparks kick off from the flames, filling the air with a beautiful pop and simmer, you feel yourself relaxing more and more. The fire dances and sways in the fireplace as it meanders over the freshly cut logs that are resting in it. For a moment, you find yourself gazing into the flames, watching with tired eyes as the flames sway from side to side. You take a deep breath of the air, the air that smells of fire crackling over the logs from a nearby pine forest. The air that smells of worn, antique books, full of sweet, sweet poetry. The air that faintly smells of the invigorating moor, just beyond the tall window panes. And, as you breathe in that air, you can't help but notice that the fire begins to grow. As you inhale, the fire expands and grows taller over the logs in the fireplace. It casts the entire room in a soothing orange glow, like the sun itself has set upon the room. And with that soothing orange glow, you feel a wave of warmth and comfort wash over you, relaxing each and every muscle in your body. It allows you to sink deeper into the bed beneath you, truly being embraced by the plush materials. As you exhale, 
Your deep, long breath seems to shrink the fire. You watch as it condenses from the crackling, dancing fire, casting an orange glow on the whole room, down to a small, steady rumble of fire. You inhale, watching the warm orange fire grow. You feel the warmth of it as it grows and grows safely on the logs. Then you exhale, feeling the fire shrink. You inhale, watching the fire grow and allowing your muscles to fully relax. Then you exhale, watching as the flames shrink down to tiny little tendrils clinging to the various logs in the fire. With every inhale and exhale that you take, you feel more and more relaxed. This cozy bedroom in the moors of England, this respite, is a place that you are welcome to journey to any time that you would like. The crackling fire will always await you, and the comfy, plush bed will always welcome you if you want to lay your head down and rest. Now that we have taken the time to relax and find comfort, in the place that we are in, here and now. Let us begin our retelling of the classic novel by Arthur Conan Doyle, The Hound of the Baskervilles. The first thing that Sherlock Holmes heard upon awakening at his home at 221B Baker Street in London was the sound of horse hooves making their way down the cobblestone street. He listened to the steady clomp, clomp, as their hooves tinked and rumbled over the cobblestones. Cobblestones that were surely slick with the freshly fallen spring rain that had washed over the city overnight. A moment later, Holmes realized that the rain was not yet done. He heard the soothing, comforting sound of the raindrops, slowly, ever so slowly, falling from the dark sky overhead. He listened as they, much like the horses, meandered across the cobblestone street landing upon them without much fanfare, but with a heavy, solid plonk. He could hear them dance across the flowers and plants, residing in the flower box, just outside the thin glass on his window. And when he opened his eyes, he could see the heavy drops 
drops landing upon the petals, weighing them down time and time again. Almost as if the sky itself was on a schedule with the flowers. Just beyond the window pane, some people scurried off to work, to classes, to meet with friends. They held umbrellas overhead and skirted through the rain, trying their darndest not to get wet. Holmes regarded them for a long moment, putting a story to each one. One woman carefully held her child over the puddles, a child that appeared to be wearing shiny new shoes. Holmes deduced that judging by the part of town they were heading back to, they were a rather poor family, and that those shoes may have been the finest thing the young child had ever received. He noticed a man and a woman making their way through the rain, giggling with one another like schoolchildren. The man extended his umbrella over the woman, urging her closer to him as they continued on their journey. The man was careful not to place his hand on the small of the woman's back, but she appeared to be leaning back toward it, and she had her purse strung on her opposite shoulder, desperate to be just a bit closer to him. They appeared to be a young couple, not yet ready to share that they were in love, but my, did they appear to be. Holmes loved looking out of his window on days like this and taking in the people of London. Each one had a story to tell. Whether it was a story they told through shiny new shoes or the tantalizing distance between their hand and someone else's. Holmes rose from the comfort of his bed, even with the lazy rain, he was ready for the day. He knew he had work to tend to, mysteries to solve, and people throughout the city to help. By looking out his window at people, he put his heart and mind in the right spot every single morning. He made his way to the kitchen, where he served himself up a rather simple breakfast of toast and eggs, as he read some novels he had just recently picked up. Then he headed to the home office, where Watson awaited him. He found Watson standing before the crackling fireplace nestled between two large bookshelves. He had a cane in his hand, a cane which was not his. 
Watson wondered aloud who the cane could belong to, whoever could have visited them and left their cane behind. As the fire crackled beside him and the rain raged on just outside the hazy glass windowpane, Watson proposed his theory. The inscription on the cane read to James Mortimer, MRCS, from his friends of the CCH. He suggested that the cane was given to an elderly doctor for his many faithful years of service. Holmes delighted in this theory, encouraging Watson to suggest something further. Watson continued, insisting that the cane must belong to a county doctor who did much walking, since the cane had so much wear. Holmes complimented Watson on his detective skills. For a moment, Watson basked in the glory of the compliment, but as Holmes himself took hold of the cane, it appeared that Watson was only right about a few things. The owner was, indeed, a country practitioner. Holmes agreed. However, CCH referred to Charing Cross Hospital, and, he deduced, the cane was given as a retirement gift from the hospital. Furthermore, it appeared that the man must have a small spaniel, since there were tiny bite marks peppered across the wood of the cane. Just as the words left his lips, Holmes looked up to see a man entering their home office with a small spaniel. The man introduced himself as Dr. Mortimer, the owner of the cane, and complimented Watson and Holmes on their observation skills. Dr. Mortimer presented Holmes and Watson with a manuscript, which Holmes quickly noted was dated 1730. In faded black ink, the document revealed the curse of the Baskervilles and the origins behind it. Long ago, at the time of the Great Revolution, Hugo Baskerville was the owner of the Baskerville Hall in the beautiful moors of Devonshire. An appalling man with no morals, he kidnapped a local woman and hid her away in an upstairs room behind a locked door. The woman managed to escape by climbing down an ivy-coated wall. She ran across the moors through the thick fog, trying to escape from Hugo. Devastated and enraged that his captive escaped 
Hugo released the hounds upon the girl and made a deal with the devil as he did so. Hugo too took off, running after the girl. His friends followed behind him, worried about his safety. When they finally found him, they were horrified to discover that he, as well as the girl, had been killed by a foul thing, a great black beast. Ever since the deaths of Hugo and the woman he kidnapped, the ominous hound of the Baskervilles has haunted the family. And the latest person to fall to the fate of the hound was none other than Sir Charles Baskerville, the latest owner of Baskerville Hall. Dr. Mortimer went on to explain that Sir Charles was an extensive philanthropist. He made a family fortune partaking in colonialism in South Africa. Two years prior, he had returned home to the family estate to enjoy his riches and to share them with the community. He was found where he took his nightly walk, down an alley called the Yew Alley, which ran alongside the moorlands, which were rumored to be haunted. Witnesses had noted that Charles had dawdled at the gated entrance to the alley for quite some time and his footsteps in the dirt indicated that he had either been running through the alley or tiptoeing, both of which were suspicious. But those weren't the only footsteps found. Mortimer looked up to Holmes and Watson. In a quiet whisper, he told them that the footprints of a gigantic hound were found alongside Sir Charles, indicating that the hound had gotten him. Of course, both Watson and Holmes were eager to help solve this mystery. Mortimer truly believed the hound had been behind it. Several locals claimed to have seen a beast wandering through the fog-shrouded moors. However, Mortimer wasn't just interested in solving the old mystery. He came to them with a more urgent quest. The sole heir to the estate, Sir Henry, was due to arrive at Waterloo Station in just an hour. Mortimer feared for Sir Henry's safety, afraid that he too would be killed by the beast, or whatever it was that had killed poor Sir Charles. Holmes told Mortimer to fetch Henry and visit them the next morning. 
As soon as Mortimer left, Holmes and Watson discussed their theories. Holmes wanted to rule out all ordinary causes before turning to a supernatural one. And there was something rather odd. Mortimer's footsteps showed him running away from his home, not towards it. Why would he be running away from anyone who may be able to help him? The next morning, Henry and Mortimer arrived at 221B Baker Street. Though beaten down by his travels from Canada and a bit worn, Sir Henry was a chipper man with a kind, gentlemanly expression. And, though he had just arrived in the country, he was already tangled in the mystery. Upon arriving at his hotel, he received a note. A note which read, As you value your life or your reason, keep away from them all. Holmes deduced that since no one could have known where Henry was staying, he must have been followed. And, judging by the letters that were cut out to compose the note, it appeared that whoever made it had made it with clippings from the Times. Surely, the person behind this was well educated, and they were trying to conceal their potentially recognizable handwriting. Furthermore, the final word, more, was written in sputtered ink, which suggested it was written with a hotel pen. Holmes believed that searching the garbage bins near Charing Cross hotels, where the letter was postmarked, may allow them to find the times that had been cut up. As soon as Mortimer and Henry left, Holmes and Watson tailed behind them, hoping to spot their stalker. Indeed, they laid eyes on a man with a bushy beard in a cab, but the man spotted them and quickly left. Holmes noted the cab number, 2704. Holmes and Watson met Henry and Mortimer for lunch and discussed Henry's decision to go to Baskerville Hall after receiving a threat. Holmes asked if there was anyone with a bushy black beard up at Devonshire and was pleased to learn that the butler, Mr. Barrymore, did indeed. Wanting to know whether Barrymore was in London with them or at home, Holmes sent a telegram with instructions for it to be hand-delivered or returned to sender. Mortimer informed him that Barrymore did inherit 500 pounds and a work-free setup 
as soon as Sir Charles died. Holmes insisted that Sir Henry needed a more attentive bodyguard in Devonshire, and proposed that Watson go along with him. Sir Henry agreed, preparing them all for the next phase of their investigation. Holmes and Watson returned home, hoping to receive answers, which they did, but not the ones they were hoping for. They learned from the telegram that Barrymore was in Devonshire, not London. And furthermore, the cab driver contacted them, announcing that the man who was with him went by the name of Sherlock Holmes. Amused by the wit and skill of the man they were up against, Holmes could only smile. Watson embarked on his journey to the moor, along with Mortimer and Henry. As they approached the grey expanse of the moor, Watson was in awe. He found himself feeling very small. The moor was otherworldly. The sprawling fields and rolling meadows seemed to stretch on for as far as the eye could see. There were scarcely any trees peppered throughout the moor. In their place, short shrubs and lichens painted the green hillsides in an array of darker greens, purples, and reds. Large slate rocks were scattered throughout the moor, only adding to the alien feel of the landscape. It felt ancient here, Watson noted. It felt as though there were secrets in these halls, and woven through the shrubs and trees here, secrets that had long been buried. Secrets that one could only catch glimpses of when the moon was full, or when the fog happened to shift in just the right way. Though Baskerville Hall was a stunning, regal estate, and the village around it was rather charming, there was a deep sense of loneliness that washed upon whoever passed through here, and Watson was not immune to that feeling. Upon arriving, Watson came to meet Barrymore and his wife announced that they would be leaving Sir Henry's service soon. They were left quite unsettled after Charles's death, and they longed to establish a business of their own. That night, as Watson was falling asleep in Baskerville Hall for the first time, he was disturbed by a woman's sobbing. The following morning, he inquired about it at breakfast, causing Mr. Barrymore to get rather flustered. Barrymore insisted that it was not his wife crying, 
Yet Watson could see her eyes were swollen and her lips were red. He decided to investigate whether the telegram had been handed directly to Mr. Barrymore and was shocked to learn that it had been handed to Mrs. Barrymore instead, who insisted her husband was too busy to receive a telegram. Watson knew he could not cross Mr. Barrymore off his list of suspects just yet. Later that afternoon, Watson was approached by Mr. Stapleton of the nearby Merry Pitt House, a local botanist. Mr. Stapleton expressed his desire for Mr. Henry to continue on with Charles's philanthropy and also noted the silliness of the local legends. He proposed that Charles was not killed by a beast, but rather that he was scared to death, something that would be fairly easy considering his heart condition. Watson was surprised to learn that Mr. Stapleton knew of his medical condition. The two walked along the moor together, soaking in the moody atmosphere that the fog and barren landscape brought. Stapleton warned Watson of the dangers of the moor, including the great Grimpen Mire, a portion of the moor where one could be sucked down like they had stepped into quicksand. Stapleton wandered off, chasing after a butterfly, just as Miss Stapleton appeared. The sister of Mr. Stapleton, she was a beauty who looked nothing like him. As Watson tried to introduce himself, he was cut off by her, insisting that he should go back to London and that he should say nothing to her brother. Watson was surprised by this, and even more surprised when Mr. Stapleton reappeared, and he learned that Miss Stapleton mistook Watson for Sir Henry when she gave him the warning. As they said goodbye for the day, Miss Stapleton raced to Watson's side, urging him to forget about her previous warnings. Watson tried to press her for more details, but she said nothing. Several days later, Watson penned down his latest findings and tales from the journey in his journal. He noted a story of a convict that had escaped from a nearby prison was apparently wandering the moors for two weeks. Yet another mystery in this strange place. On top of that, Watson suspected there was a budding romance between Miss Stapleton and Sir Henry. Mr. Stapleton, of course, seemed unhappy 
that Sir Henry was pursuing his sister. Watson investigated and questioned Barrymore about the telegram. Barrymore insisted that he was home when the telegram arrived, but Watson was far from convinced, and matters were only made worse when one night he awakened to the sound of footsteps outside his door. When Watson rose to his feet and looked out into the hall, he saw Barrymore walk up to a window and hold his candle aloft, as if he was signaling someone down at the moor. Watson managed to make it to his bedroom before being spotted, but the discovery left him with more questions than answers. And, to complicate matters further, Watson continued to hear the cries of Mrs. Barrymore at night. After investigating the window with views of the moor, Watson started to believe that Barrymore was having an affair with a local country girl, but he decided an investigation was necessary to know for sure. After staking out for two nights, Watson caught Mr. Barrymore again, signaling someone in the moor and someone signaling back. After interrogating him unsuccessfully, it was Mrs. Barrymore who came forward and revealed the mystery. Her brother was the escaped convict, and they had been feeding and clothing him. Watson consulted with Sir Henry, and they both decided they had to capture the convict. Following the light, they were startled by the sounds of loud moaning and howling, clear calls of a wolf. It took all of their courage to press forward. However, as soon as they spotted the convict, he managed to escape, leaving them empty-handed. On the way back, through the moor, they were surprised to notice the silhouette of a person. A person they soon learned was evidently residing in one of the ancient huts on the moor and regularly received food parcels from a young boy. They knew they had to investigate the man on the moor, but first they had to have a discussion with Barrymore regarding the convict and their next steps with him. After speaking with Barrymore for quite some time, Watson and Sir Henry decided to let the convict go. He was just biding time before he could get on a ship bound for South Africa and he wouldn't be harming anyone. Relieved by them agreeing to let the convict escape, 
Barrymore offered up a clue that he had long hidden. Sir Charles was going to meet a woman the night that he died. A woman with the initials L.L. Watson learned from Mortimer that L.L. was none other than Laura Lyons, a woman who married an artist against her family's will and was disowned as a result. When Watson visited her, she reluctantly disclosed that Sir Charles supported her financially after Stapleton informed him of her situation. Laura claimed to have been unable to meet Sir Charles the night that he died, but refused to say why. With no answers from Laura Lyons, Watson headed out to investigate the man he spotted on the moor, the man in the hut. He eagerly awaited his return, but when the man returned, he was utterly surprised to learn that it was none other than Holmes in disguise. Holmes revealed that he had been hiding on the moor so that the culprit would not know of his direct involvement. In his hiding, Holmes had discovered several things. Laura and Mr. Stapleton were incredibly close, and Beryl, the woman claiming to be Mr. Stapleton's sister, was actually his wife. Stapleton is who Holmes believed to be the culprit. He was using Beryl to trick Laura and Sir Henry, and used Laura to lure Sir Charles into the moor. They were on their way to visit Laura Lyons, but were interrupted by a scream. Following the direction of the scream, they discovered the convict lying dead in what appeared to be Sir Henry's clothes. It seemed the hound had been taught to go after Sir Henry using his scent, and by wearing his clothes, the convict had put himself at risk. Just moments later, Stapleton arrived, assuming the dead man was Sir Henry, but was shocked to discover it wasn't. Wanting to defuse the situation and make Stapleton think they weren't suspicious of him, Watson suggested the convict had simply fallen and broken his neck. Stapleton went home, reassured that the detectives weren't on to him. Next, Holmes and Watson headed to Laura's house, where Holmes revealed Stapleton's secret marriage. Laura was crushed by this and revealed the truth. Stapleton offered to marry her if she got a divorce but doing so would have required help from Sir Charles. 
she wrote a letter to Sir Charles on Stapleton's orders, urging him to meet her by the gates on that fateful night. With answers finally in place, Watson and Holmes headed to Stapleton's estate. Upon their arrival, they found Sir Henry talking to Mr. Stapleton when a thick fog started encompassing the estate. On Sir Henry's walk back, the detectives followed him, desperate to protect him from the hound. And when the hound finally emerged, they were stunned. It was massive, the size of a lioness, and it seemed to glow in the darkness. They managed to kill the beast just before it attacked Sir Henry. Upon inspecting the beast, they discovered it was covered in phosphorus to make it glow, and was a bloodhound mastiff mix. The following day, Mrs. Stapleton led the detectives to her husband's hiding place in the dangerous mire where he often kept his hounds. They discovered the phosphorus that made the bloodhound glow, along with several of Stapleton's belongings. And not only that, but they discovered his boot sunken in the mire. It appeared that the culprit had been swallowed by the mire. Back at home, the detectives unraveled the case for Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer. Holmes revealed that Stapleton was actually the son of Roger Baskerville. He lived in South America and married Beryl, a native Costa Rican. After embezzling money, he changed his name and fled to the safety of England. Wanting to collect his family fortune, he decided he had to get Sir Charles and any other heirs of family wealth out of the way. After such madness, Sir Charles and Dr. Mortimer set off on a vacation. And as for the detectives, they headed back to London, where more mysteries awaited them. I hope you have enjoyed this story, and it has brought you a night of restful, peaceful sleep. Please, join me again tomorrow night for another sleep story. Until then, sweet dreams. <laughs>